Hello, and welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebaugh, president of Yankee Institute, and today we are delighted to welcome Leah Kroll to the program. Leah is the Senior Director, Strategy and Innovation at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And Leah is the author of a fascinating new book, Innovation for Social Change, How Wildly Successful Nonprofits Inspire and Deliver Results. And Leah is just the person um, to look at how nonprofits and really in general, I think almost any organization can innovate and advance change. And Leah, we're delighted to welcome you to YCT Matters. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Carol. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Um, You know, one of the things that I thought might be of huge interest to our listeners is uh, how you spark innovation. Uh, And really, you know, this is what you talk about it with a nonprofit team, but some of it really is interesting because when you talk about the brainstorming, it really, I think, in Mm -hmm. some ways applies across the board. Would you tell us a little bit about, about that? Definitely. Yes. Um, so I, first off, I should say, I, I believe in stealing good ideas wherever you see them. Absolutely. And so um, what really got me interested was learning about how Pixar's movies um, have come to be. And, you know, everyone knows about Pixar. They've won like 23 Academy Awards and are some of the highest grossing animated films of all time. Think of Toy Story. And so, you know, I wondered, well, what's the secret to their success? And is there something we could learn from what they do and, and apply it to our nonprofit world or maybe any any company? Um, So what I learned was that at Pixar, teams are expected to give what they call brutal feedback to each other. And a Pixar executive will say that they assume early on that all of our movies actually suck. And the job of the creative feedback process is to get the movie from suck to unsuck. And so that's kind of shocking language, right? Brutal and all of our movies suck. Um, But everyone in the room knows that the questions raised must be in the spirit of making the creative product as good as it possibly can be. So without the manager setting the tone as a safe space, this kind of tough love feedback process would never get off the ground. And so I wanted to know more, you know, how do they do this? And so what I learned is that they use a creative process called design thinking, and it's used by many marketing and design firms. It's, It's been out there for decades and kind of morphing over the years and improving Um, But there are definitely some parallels, I think, to designing a movie and designing nonprofit programs and interventions. And so nonprofit teams can use these techniques as well. And design thinking, it's really a process for exploring what's possible and thinking creatively and strategically. So with design thinking um, and the way I translated it for our nonprofit world is asking ourselves three sets of questions. What's desirable? What's scalable? And what's feasible? And I'll explain each of those briefly. So what's desirable is getting at what is the problem we're trying to solve? And in nonprofits, it's often what is the social problem we're trying to solve? And are we are we good at identifying hidden needs? And teams struggle with this. It sounds so simple, but it's actually pretty, you know, it can be so convoluted. I'll call it like the fog of good intentions. You know? Right. <laughs> but this is so important. And by being clear about our problem, then everything we choose to do, how we design our programs, it all cascades from that original definition of what problem are we trying to solve? And you know, Leah, it's so interesting. Yeah, no, it is so interesting because you're right about the fuzziness, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because it it seems to me a lot of nonprofits and really, you know, anyone you can get off track and kind of um, 
because you look around and you see all these different things. And if you're not really honed in like a laser beam, if you don't know your problem, you certainly can't find your answer. Yes. And I, I felt it was important in, in my book. So while there's lots of stories of success stories of innovative organizations that are fun and really exciting to read about and inspiring, um, I felt it was really important to try to find those examples of nonprofit failure too, where they didn't do such a good job laser focusing on the problem they were trying to solve and ended up with scope creep and spreading themselves too thin or closing their doors. So we can learn from those stories too. So I agree it's common and it's, it's not easy. Um, but I, I did find stories of this. So um, a great example of a nonprofit that was trying to figure out what is the problem we're trying to solve. Um, let's, let's say, for example, you work at a nonprofit that focuses on workforce development. So what aspect of workforce development are you trying to solve? Are you focused on those who are just temporarily unemployed and will probably readily find their way back into the workforce with just a little bit of help? Or what about the chronically unemployed or underemployed? So, you know, what, what is the social problem you're trying to solve? So there's a good story of not too far from Connecticut, um, a nonprofit called Grayston Bakery out of Yonkers, New York, that mm -hmm. they, they do workforce development. And so they did things so outside the box. Um, the team at Greystone Bakery wanted to take on some of those hardest cases of the chronically unemployed. And they worked really hard to understand the problem they're trying to solve. So. Um, they designed immersion experiences and their founder, who's a really brainy person, an aeronautical engineer, actually experimented with living on the street for a few weeks to better understand the clients that they're serving, uh, walking in their shoes. And what they learned from those immersion experiences was powerful and they radically redesigned their workforce training programs and they're very successful. They do things very differently than the typical workforce um, development program. So that's uh, an example of asking what's desirable and getting clarity about the problem we're trying to solve. And then related, um, so that was the first question in design thinking, then what's scalable is, what if that seemingly small idea of yours has giant ramifications? And there's some great stories from the civil rights movement of early experimentation with overturning a local Jim Crow law that they then learned how to scale nationally. So these are great questions to help leaders think about scaling and growing. And then what's feasible? So in nonprofits, there are many problems we want to tackle. And when we have many possible opportunities, um, you know, how do we narrow and focus? And teams really struggle with be being spread too thin. So we have to choose. We have limited resources and we have to be realistic. So there's a set of questions we can think through when we ask what's feasible that can be very helpful. And it can be helpful to find clarity about this before we start investing our limited resources <laughs> into programs. So all those questions, really, that's the first section of the book is breaking apart design thinking, but applied to a nonprofit space. And their thought exercises that either you could take your team through um, mm -hmm. or you could just do your own. If you're reading the book by yourself and you just want to do your own back of the envelope thinking about these questions, it's really set up to do that with kind of fun, thought provoking questions and stories and examples. Yes, yes. Um, you know, and then just to sort of uh, talk about a related issue, you know, because obviously, once you kind of do this analysis, you end up coming to decision points. And one of the interesting things you talk about is how do you make decisions when your head's telling you one thing and your heart's telling you another? Because that is something we grapple with a lot at Yankee Institute. You know, we're the only uh, really sort of... Um, free market organization in the state. And so they're really, as I often joke with our staff, it, it's like so many issues, so little time. Yes. 
So, yeah, so I, I think that what's what's feasible question is is so important. And um, yeah, that that's exactly why I wrote that first section of the book the way I did. It's um, encouraging teams to take make the time to do those thought exercises, surface their best thinking as much as you can. Um, so that you can make good trade-off decisions. Like, what are your assumptions? Bring them out into the open. You know, your mental models, your your hidden um, assumptions about why you do what you do. And just by, uh, I would argue, some people will say, oh, you know, we we don't have the time to be strategic. But I think you must make the time because, you know, you could end up going down the wrong path and spending resources in a, you know, unhelpful way. And it's just far better to make the time to to think through these questions. Yes. You know, it all often reminds me of, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said it, but Justice Thomas quoted it. And it's uh, when you find out you're down way down the wrong road, you're always better advised to turn around and come back yes. uh, than, than to continue down the wrong road because you end up wasting more time and more resources doing that. Yes. Just saying, <laughs> eh, mistake, just come on back. Uh, okay. So now probably humility time for me, but that's okay. A little humility is a healthy thing. Um, let's talk a little bit about the four key traits of nonprofit innovators, because, you know, and and probably it, it's the kind of thing that isn't, again, restricted to nonprofits. It's really, you know, uh, just innovators in general, because as I was looking at them and reading about them and thinking about them, they really do in many cases, um, apply to innovators in general. I was thinking about Elon Musk, Richard Branson, you know, a lot of people, even in the for-profit world, where you get the, the sense they're not really just doing it for the money. Right, right. Um, yeah, the last part of the book is all about that. It's bringing your own personal innovation A-game, and it's really where it gets personal. And it asks, are there traits of nonprofit innovators and social entrepreneurs we can learn from? And um, what I learned from doing lots of reading and interviewing folks is, um, you know, social entrepreneurs are deeply passionate and genuinely love what they do. They're fearless and relentless problem solvers. They boldly challenge the status quo and they're very persuasive. And what I found, the good news is that these are things we can all learn. You don't have to be born with these traits. So um, breaking that out into several chapters, um, one of the chapters in this section I call Discover Your Superpower. So I, I work at an economic research center and the economists that I work with would call it finding your comparative advantage, but I, I called it finding your superpower. So each of us have these unique gifts, but we have to make the best use of our time, our talents and our limited resources. We can't say yes to everything. So we have to make trade-offs with our time. And how do we confidently say no to things? And we're you know, we're less likely to innovate or lead teams to innovate if we aren't focused and if we don't know ourselves and our own gifts. So the book asks um, folks to think, readers to think through questions like, if someone asked you to describe your secret superpower, what would you say? What are your gifts? What are your skills, your strengths? What fulfills you and puts the fire in your belly? So the chapter really encourages you to think about those things and the experience that you contribute to your work, to your family, your community. And it provides questions that prompt you to think about yourself. And it shares stories of nonprofit leaders and how they found their superpower. And the book also spends some time on how nonprofit innovators learn how to be persuasive. This is so important because there are far more innovative ideas than there are resources. And, you know, if you think about your own experience, if you've worked in a nonprofit, and of course you have, um, you know, if you have an innovative idea, you have to convince others that your good idea is a great idea, you know, to stand out. Yeah, you're, you're. 
your innovative ideas are only worth as much as you can convince other people to buy into them with you. Yes. yes. So we need resources and <clears throat> we have to convince our colleagues, our boss, our donors. You know, you might have to convince superstar talent to recruit them to work on your team or mm -hmm. perhaps convince an author to be on your podcast. Right. Um, and where I work, um, you know, we have a nonprofit of about 200 people and 30 different teams. You know, I might have to convince an internal team to support my project. And, you know, our IT team gets 100 requests a year, but maybe can only do 30 of those. How do they choose? And so this is really a two way street. You have to make a convincing business case to them, but then they also have to be transparent in how they make decisions. And so I share how they do that in the book. Um, similarly, grant makers might get 100 grant applications, but can only fund five. So the book shares examples for making your case to persuade stakeholders. And um, while I was researching examples of this, there were just some stories that made me laugh out loud. Like, I was really surprised to learn how Mother Teresa and Fred Rogers, who, of course, had great ideas, were very often told no. And that blew me away. I mean, can you imagine saying no to Mother Teresa? But no. People, <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> but, but people did. They're um, kind of the supervisors over them did. And so... You know, now we know that they're creative superstars, but they had to learn how to become very persuasive, you know, to dust themselves off and try again. And so just like them, you know, if we want to bring our innovation A game, we're going to face many obstacles and we have to be persuasive. Well, so, I, I feel oh. a lot better, Leah, with some of the no's I've heard. If Mr. Rogers <laughs> and Mother Teresa heard no, I'm starting to feel better. <laughs> right. You should. So, you know, it's just it's a tough world out there, but these are skills we can learn. Um, so kind of following that uh, rabbit trail, I wanted to kind of break apart. Well, how can we be more persuasive? And right. so um, I have a, a chapter uh, with some stories on how persuasiveness requires a mix of curiosity, challenge and diplomacy. So uh, a personal story I'll share. So during my Peace Corps service, this was almost 20 years ago, I was teaching computer literacy at a teacher's college in a dangerous part of Kingston, which is the capital of Jamaica. Jamaica, right. And um, the school was administered by the small determined band of Franciscan nuns who also ran several other schools in the area. And they were strong and hardworking and ran a tight ship. But they were also very kind and generous and often had a twinkle in the eye. And I noticed right away the respect the students had for these sisters. They were savvy, too, and they made the most of their limited funds and resources. And they made sure that the grounds were always kept looking beautiful. They made a lot with their small amount of resources. They raised money for scholarships and other programs, and they did a lot of good in their community. So a day I'll never forget, there was one day one of the elderly sisters brought me along on an errand she had to run, and I don't remember the errand, but I'll always remember that day. So we drove into Trenchtown, which is a dangerous Kingston community. Right. Um, that name might sound familiar because it's where Bob Marley had lived as a young man, and he wrote lyrics about Trenchtown. Um, but it was really a community run by drug lords. And there were gunmen posted every few blocks to keep rival gangs out. So as I was driving in a, in a van with this elderly sister and we rounded a street corner, a gang member with a gun suddenly walked into the middle of the road and stopped us. And I was trying to stay calm. This was a large man. He had kind of a fierce expression. And the sister seemed to know him. And I saw her giving him a lecture about how drugs were destroying the community. And she was urging him to get out of the business. This was not making me feel any calmer. And I actually saw her kind of shake her, her finger in his face <laughs> as she scolded him. And yet he listened attentively and kind of looked down at his shoes and actually seemed a bit embarrassed. And after a moment, he spoke softly with her and then waved us through. And what I realized was he respected her. There is power in what these sisters are doing. 
So not only did this little band of nuns manage to help this college survive, they help it thrive even in the midst of a dangerous, desperate, poverty-ridden community. They did not accept the status quo of poorly run educational institutions. They were restless, constantly innovating, always striving to make life better for their students. And to me, what I saw that they had is this combination of curiosity, challenge, but also balance with diplomacy. And that's what gave them credibility and helped them persuade people in their communities so that they can go about their work, even when it's a gang member with a gun. So um, I was pretty impressed by, by I, what they did. I can imagine and relieved. <laughs> that respect comes in very handy. <laughs> that I live to tell the tale. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, in the book, you also um, talk about other leaders that, you know, have really been incredible nonprofit innovators. Is there is there another story that really stuck with you um, kind of like that? There's um, so, so many. Um, the, the opening chapter of the book is a story of a student run school um, in New Jersey. Their story is impressive. I, I led the book with that because they just I thought they exemplified almost every good practice that I talked about in the rest of the book. Um, I'll just I'll leave it to folks to, to read the book to, to find out more about them. But um, St. Benedict's Prep School, they're just incredible. And um, their journey from almost having to close their doors back in the 60s to being the school that's now featured on, you know, 60 Minutes and books are written about them. They're incredible. Um, another example I really like is uh, Mayo Clinic. Uh, just is, is uh, you know, they're a nonprofit hospital, but they, they do so many things right with um, kind of a innovative workplace culture. Um, one of their uh, organizational values is I think the needs of the patient come first and they really um, are intentional in how they design their workplace practices. It's not just empty platitudes hanging on a wall. So um, there are stories in the book about how they did things like um, you know, uh, the, the realizing that when a patient's sleeping at night in hospitals, there's a lot of night sounds, a lot of things that might disrupt their sleep. And so a team at Mayo Clinic, um, the night staff were like, what if we did a noise study? And, uh, you know, think about how much uh, noises at night might disrupt a patient's sleep. And then what can we do about it? And so they did things like design quieter wheels on food carts and lower, de lower decibel paging and so on. So to me, when you break that apart and learn how they design a workplace culture where everyone on the staff from top to bottom is empowered to come up with cool ideas like that, that really do make lives for patients better and um, enhance the healing process. It's why Mayo Clinic is known for being one of the best hospitals in the world and, um, you know, um, healing so many people in incredible ways. So um, that's, that's a story that really sticks with me. It is. And so, um, and so finally, what brought you to write this book? I mean, obviously you love nonprofits, you work for one, um, but, but you know, what gave you the idea, Leah? Um, so yeah, for about the last two decades, my role has involved um, doing a lot of facilitating at my own nonprofit. I work at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, mm -hmm. um, and I've been this sort of internal consultant. And so I work with uh, teams to draw out their best thinking and um, help them think through things like program strategy and how do we make sure our results are effective and that we're accountable um, so I do this for Mercatus teams, and then we also have a wider network of 200 university centers um, that I offer those services to. And I just love that. I love walking alongside some entrepreneurial founder or team leader. And, you know, uh, we mentioned earlier on the fog of good intentions, and that's just, it's a challenge. And so I feel like that's kind of my superpower is mm -hmm. uh, walking alongside an entrepreneurial person and helping them get clarity of thinking 
um, and, uh, you know, persuade others, um, you know, about their good idea, that it's a great idea and seeing programs blossom and have impact um, that makes me happy. So um, in doing that kind of work for the last uh, 20 years or so, it was about three years ago that my executive director kind of knocked on my door and said, hey, Leah, I've been hearing good things about these workshops of yours. Why don't you put it into book form? And uh, I, I was like, let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, it's something I've always wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I, for a while I thought, well, I've, I've never published a book or written a book. So, you know, worst case, if I never find a publisher, I'll just work all this material into my workshops and they're going to be that much better. So I tried not to pressure myself, but I was absolutely delighted when um, Wiley Press, uh, you know, loved the book too. And now it's out. So um, it's been a wonderful journey. <laughs> well, I'm so glad. and. You know, the name of the book is Innovation for Social Change, How Wildly Successful Nonprofits Inspire and Deliver Results. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, and Walmart. And again, Innovation for Social Change by Leah Kral, K-R-A-L. And it is a fantastic book, Leah. Um, it really, it's great for nonprofit leaders, really just innovators of all kinds. <laughs> and so we are so grateful to you for taking time to join us and talk a little bit about it. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a delight to be here. Well, thank you. And as always, we are grateful to you, our listeners, for having joined us. This is Carol Platt-Lebow. We look forward to having you with us next time for another edition of YCT Matters. I'll show you.